0: CESU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am Mark Molyneux, and this is the Henry George Program. The show about housing, policy, class segregation, racial segregation, so on and so forth. Today in the program, we have on two guests. Diego Aguilar, formerly of the Bay City Beacon, and Jordan Grimes of Peninsula for Everyone. And we're talking all about Article 34. That crazy amendment to the California State Constitution that makes public housing effectively illegal. We'll hear all about it, its history, and what's being done about it now to repeal it. So uh, let's get into things. So welcome back to KZSU, Diego. Ling, ling, ling. Thanks. It's good to
1: it's good to be back. Thanks, Mark. Oh, the toilets. The I, same I didn't as say, usual. I didn't say welcome to you yet. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, and from Peninsula for everyone, uh, welcome Jordan. Thanks, Mark. So we're talking Article Thirty Four. Uh, yes. What is Article 34?
1: Uh, it's an article in the California state constitution that puts uh, low-rent, publicly subsidized housing to a local ballot initiative. You can imagine that um, local voters who, who don't like the poor vote against this pretty consistently.
0: Um, it's worth mentioning the California state constitution uh, has been around for better part of 150 years. Yeah. Uh, it it's sucks. one of the longest constitutions in the world of yes. anything. It's second only to India, right? I believe. Yeah, I think it's second in the world, and it is full of the worst garbage you can yes. possibly imagine. Yes, I mean Prop 13 is one of the famous pieces of garbage. Article 34, A separate
1: tax break for golf courses, right?
0: <laughs> they just, I mean, there's there's enough yeah. to. I mean, it's yeah, incredible yeah, 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 yeah. just how much. Yeah. And Article 34 is one of the most specifically egregious things in the Constitution, which is just, you can't make public housing without letting a municipality vote on it. Right. And you can imagine how that works.
1: So, Senate Constitutional Amendment 1, which um, has passed through various committees in the state Senate, would put a repeal of Article 34 on the 2020 ballot. This is the fourth attempt to repeal Article 34 by the state ballot. Um, The first two, if I'm not mistaken, were spearheaded by then Assembly Speaker Willie Brown.
0: Did they die in Sacramento, or did they make it the ballot and get voted They failed down? at the ballot. Really? Yes.
1: The third, the third and most recent attempt in the early '90s, uh, interestingly, um, was uh, endorsed by the California Association of Realtors, which is ironic because they were one of the you know initial interest groups that that got it on to the state constitution by ballot initiative in 1950.
0: Yeah, so uh, we'll talk about an article you wrote for the base, base City Beacon, talking yep. about the history of this, the yeah. deplorable history of Article 34, something it's like deplorable that.
1: Deplorable politics, I think. Yeah. But yeah, same thing.
0: And uh, I think we're, we're Jordan on also to talk about the fact, this isn't just some sudden kind of, like, it's public housing, social housing. It's in a bad state because we're not funding, we're not doing stuff. But this still matters, and it still affects the way that we're creating housing today. It's not... It's not some trivial side issue. This is actual, this
2: matters. Absolutely. And the loss of public housing, especially in counties, especially in suburban counties, um, have had a disastrous effect on low-income populations.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think aside from the funding, like one thing to always keep in mind that Article 34 kind of puts to the fore is that the distribution is important regardless of how much money there is for it. And not just the distribution, but like, how quickly it can get approved and built. I mean, you know, if you just mo- more recently in the news in the last few weeks, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors shot down a proposed charter amendment by Mayor London Breed to um, uh, streamline uh, approvals for uh, affordable housing. Um, it was kind of like a, a mixed income scheme with some like nonprofit-owned market-rate housing that would cross-subsidize lower-income things, and obviously they they filled their diapers over the, the market-rate part and. And they, uh, you know, as some supervisors went on the record saying, "Well, no, the neighbors should have the ability to appeal these projects, which ends in, in years-long processes, and, and these appeals only cost about five hundred dollars to file, but you can add millions of dollars to the cost of affordable housing." So, um, yeah, the the ability for wealthy homeowners to say no to public housing, to to deny housing as a right for people less privileged than them, just is kind of baked into California's democracy.
0: So I think uh. to, to, to focus on a few things, too, it's like I think we are seeing, in the midst of our housing crisis, um, a willingness to pay for affordable housing. We, we, oh, yes. We saw a massive thing on the state ballot last year, yes. Prop 1. Yes. Uh, we saw uh, Prop C in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, we have uh, from, I think- this San
1: is going to do another affordable housing bond, $600 million.
0: Uh, there's uh, measures that we a few years ago in mm-hmm. Santa Clara County that we've mm-hmm. been distributing. San Mateo County, what, what's what's theirs? Do they have their own like measure that has funded uh, affordable housing in recent years? Or
2: yeah, so there was Measure K, um, which passed a few years back, um, and is our you know primary driver of affordable housing funds.
0: And here's the thing: you can fund it. But then you actually have to make it legal and build it, and this is not trivial. Yes, I mean I've I've mentioned that in Santa Clara County, everything gets built in San Jose to Gilroy. Mm -hmm. Part of this is land acquisition costs. Part of it is the fact Mm -hmm. that if this is a subsidized place in. Palo Alto, Palo mm. Alto residents have a constitutionally protected right to vote on any yes.
1: that's in And one of the ways it increases the the costs of affordable housing is just through compliance and frankly through like skirting that requirement because if you if you get enough sort of private donations and, and low-income housing tax credits to cover those costs um if like less than 50% of your funding is from like a single government subsidized source, then like you can arguably avoid an Article 34 suit. Um, my understanding is like a lot of people just, just kind of shrug and, and hope that people won't look too closely at Article 34, but it does add costs to just, you know, like there's a whole cottage industry of attorneys that sort of get the the different pieces of the affordable housing financing puzzle together to make sure it goes through, and um, Article 34 just just makes that a complicated thing that uh, this new crop of experts has to deal with.
0: Yeah, I mean, this goes to like the, the basic question. If you want to subsidize housing, what is the easiest and most straightforward way to do it? You You pay for yeah. it and you build it. That's illegal. Yeah, <laughs> so instead yeah. you have complicated systems that are kosher- but they're insane. Yeah, yeah. and I,
1: I want to say too. I mean, we mentioned all these ballot measures. Uh, one that kind of flew under the radar was Emeryville's Measure C last year, which was a fifty million dollar housing bond. I mean, again, for a population of ten thousand, which is pretty huge. Um, but they're, they uh, because they went for the two thirds supermajority requirement, they uh, baked in an Article Thirty Four. Um, compliance into the measure. So Emeryville also oh, so you
0: pre-qualify- Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, Article 34 requires a simple majority to pass. But if you're going for, um, like, raising taxes to, to fund bond issuance, um, then that's two-thirds. So, like, I mean, automatically yeah. um, you can- but you can uh, qualify for article 34 and so they bake that into the to the measure and Emeryville is going to build you know like 500 units of affordable housing with their own money um, so the system
0: works because yeah. Prop 13 is so strenuous. If you pass Prop 13, you automatically pass Article 34. If you do it right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the system works. Let's talk about the history in in uh, from, yeah. from your article, which I'd say is a Caro esque example of of research. A lot of old newspapers. It's it's uh, real, really yeah, interesting. I mean, stuff. I had
1: some help. Uh, it was a lot of hours in the Oakland Public Library, looking at you know microfiche of newspapers that are no longer in circulation. <laughs> Uh, which is something Jordan so funny, does too, Jordan. pulling up these old
0: crazy articles because yeah. it's it's. You get this weird housing discourse yeah. that goes on, but, like, it's 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 really funny to find these old pieces of insanity yeah. trapped in amber. So, you know, from-
1: what I was amazed, too, is that, you know, there's, a lot has been written about the history of segregation and urban development in Oakland and in the East Bay. Um, Article 34 is relegated to a footnote in Richard Rothstein's Color of Law, mm. and it's, like, alluded to in American Babylon, which I have a copy of here. But, you know, the the campaign for article 34 came out of this this strenuous um, homeowner and business interests alliance against public housing in Oakland that then went statewide but I think one of the reasons it gets kind of written out of uh, Oakland histories is is that um, they uh, the the statewide campaign uh, took as its impetus a lawsuit in Eureka against the public housing plan but the coalition was formed in Oakland Mm. so people kind of um, bifurcate these and, oh, well, you know, when they write about Article 34, they talk about um, the Eureka lawsuit being the impetus for the ballot measure, but really this coalition from the, the Committee for Home Protection, which was formed um, by realtors and um, Wealthy Hills homeowners who, you know, in their day jobs were financiers, business owners in the
0: downtown or whatever. Well, let's let's start from the beginning and tell sure. like where the story all started, which, I mean, like, yeah. nothing really starts, but right, I, think, right, right. I think a good place where the article starts is talking about uh, there was the post-war scene in Oakland, which is a very interesting time of housing scarcity. We imported uh, a lot of workers, which a lot of low-income minority workers, especially to help in the war effort. Yes, And now they're still around and they need a place to live. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, by way of like a lot of background, um, you know, with World War II, uh, after that you have the GI Bill um, and various like New Deal federal housing policies, which say, okay, like we have all these soldiers coming back from war, we have you know the shipbuilding industries and and the war industries and people needing this housing, um, and and the country rising out of the Great Depression. What if we help the middle class own homes? Um, as a wealth building vehicle, and as a and like build all these new suburbs um, as a way for you know to get cheap land for for people to to own these nice homes and and build middle class wealth. Oh, by the way, uh, it should only be for white people. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's uh, as you know baked into the to the FHA mortgage insurance policies that you know created redlining maps and et cetera et cetera. We don't need to. Uh, we can do a whole separate podcast about that. Um, but, the, you know, the, the point of that is that um, they planned for sort of white suburban middle class growth. They did not plan for African-American and Mexican-American and Asian-American immigrant growth in, uh, in the ports and in the shipbuilding and in the naval bases and in, you know, the GM factories in Richmond that then moved to Fremont. Um, so you have this huge boom of jobs and growth that um, federal housing policies did not account for and explicitly excluded.
0: It sounds like during the war, there was kind of like a, like a lot of ad hoc solutions, boarding houses, yeah. which is like, I think that that can do in a pinch, but you need yeah. to make better solutions than boarding houses. Yeah. But P.S. I think we should legalize boarding houses.
1: Well, yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, so the housing shortage was so acute after World War II Um, You have a lot of overcrowding and, you know, you have a lot of what, uh, you know, the dog whistle by um, federal regulators was uh, blighted areas. Um, But, you know, just like people living in substandard conditions, uh, which is what happens when there isn't enough housing, but people still want to live there. Um, But, oops, a lot of them are black, so you can't give them a, a... uh, federally backed mortgage insurance. You want, um, you
0: want to deal with the slums, but you don't want to help the people. What do right. you What do you do about it? Yeah.
1: So, um, public housing seems like a pretty straightforward solution. Um, Which is part. This is oops, part of my it's segregated. <laughs> Even but, yeah. So yeah. private housings, uh, backed by federal mortgage guarantees, segregated. Public housing, oops, also segregated. Um, you know, the only, like, wartime uh, boarding houses that, that were uh, desegregated were in Marin, and immediately after the war, they resegregated them, because, you know, Marin can't have brown people, my goodness. God forbid. Um, so,
0: it's kind of crazy. Like, it seems like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you think about the post-war era. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, we got really anti-communist. We just, you know. Yeah. But, like, actually, there was a social democratic yes. majority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and, and, like, this is, this is, I feel like, a forgotten part of history. History, yeah, that I before mean, the suburbs kind of won out, our cities were kind of not entirely yeah. not they weren't terrible. Diff- they, yeah, they were less re- terrible. Yeah, I mean in so- fact they
2: actually might have been somewhat
1: good. <laughs> yeah, I mean if we recall like Truman tried to kind of build off the New Deal with his Fair Deal, but the New Deal coalition was like not stable enough to really put forward all these social democratic Um, programs that he wanted uh, that, you know, then Johnson later tried with the war on poverty because, um, you know, even liberal white people, once they get that little patch of land that's theirs, they don't want black people around and you can't really have social democratic programs that are racist. It just doesn't work.
0: I mean, it's one of the ideas of why did Europe actually have viable social democratic coalitions? It's like they did not have as much racist hierarchy as we have in the States. In I mean,
1: I, yeah, I guess I don't want to draw too many conclusions about Europe. I've never been there. But um, I, I guess, like, you know, people have been saying that, like, one of the things behind Brexit is, like, they don't want Polish immigrants, like, being part of Britain or whatever. Oh, well, yeah. And, you know, like, Theresa May tried to deport what, like, Jamaicans who had been there for decades. Um, so, yeah, I definitely see, you know, some... There's some backlash against... um I mean, let's we'll call it colorism. It is what it is. Um, so all of that is setting the stage. Um, in 1947, um, a loose coalition of of kind of labor and left activist groups elect a very narrow majority of social democratic council members to the Oakland City Council, um, and they're on board with public housing, right? Very controversial issue in Oakland, uh, but then there's a report... Um, that uh, says like, hey, like all these like blighted neighborhoods, all these like slums in the in the flatlands of Oakland. Uh, you're gonna have to build some public housing. Uh, and, uh, you know, Committee for Home Protection, all these uh, improvement clubs. Actually, you know, the, the one remnant of it that still exists <laughs> is the Rockridge Improvement Club, still around. Oh, I
0: said That's a name I don't hear about. You hear about the homeowner associations. Yeah. Improvement Club is yeah. one. Uh, I, that's funny. They still exist. Yeah.
1: I mean, improvement clubs date back to, you know, like the early 20th century when, when zoning codes were explicitly racist. They were yeah. like, cool, great, fine, love it. Um, Then that had to, you know, the Supreme Court struck that down and you had, they had zoning codes by, by density, which like, hey, it turns out you also like the economy is racist. So if you like keep out the pores by keeping a density, like you get your segregation anyway. Uh, Fantastic. Um, But these improvement clubs would do stuff like, like if, if there was a Chinese laundromat that like did not have the right kind of permits, they would go ahead and tear it down. Stuff like that happened. Yeah. Yeah, so, they, so um, these people, you know, had the, the downtown business interests and the, the Noland machine, you know, the owner of the Oakland Tribune and builder of the Tribune Tower, um, you know, they, they had kind of establishment support from the longstanding Oakland conservative machine. You know, we have to remember, like, Oakland before World War II was a pretty conservative, business-dominated place. And it was, um, it was a
0: lily white before the war effort. Um,
1: yes and no, but that's a that's a longer history. Okay. Um, but you know, the point is like you bring in a lot of laborers, you build in um longshoremen, guess what? They form unions. Bring in up Pullman porters, guess what? They form unions. So, um there's this uneasy labor activist coalition um that uh manages to get through this progressive social democratic city council and has this plan for for public housing um, but Taking
0: the, state funding, there's a hundred million dollar yeah. uh, yeah. to, to to play with, and yes. they're able to take a, a piece of it, and they want to build three thousand units. That's right.
1: Um,
0: so I,
1: I, this is detailed more in American Babylon than in in my article, um, but um, uh, there's a, a loose coalition, um, I, I believe, under the 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 header of the the Oakland Voters Association or Oakland Voters C- Council or whatever. That was essentially labor groups and small business owners, and they they split over property taxes. They wanted. They realized that downtown, like big building business owners, were getting big tax breaks, and um, the small business owners in like East Oakland and elsewhere were like, "Hey, like this is unfair!" Like so, they made tax cuts (laughs) a bigger part of their issue, and labor was like, "Bro, we want public housing!" Like chill and and so they were not able to resist the very uh regimented and very hard blowback from the committee for home protection and the bigger business groups and you know realtors and developers uh who said hey no um stop the public housing. They they uh they recalled one of the council members and broke the majority and then in the next election uh they just simply deposed all those council members. Their the campaign was you know, this is a second red scare, right? This is the precursor to McCarthyism. So you have a lot of oh uh unions are communists, oh like unions are basically Stalin. Um, that is the rhetoric they use, you know, nationwide to break labor coalitions, but yeah. that they use to to stop this campaign and and you and know, and
0: also a- it also worked to defeats the the proposition about funding at the state level. Also. Yeah, so
1: so there was a Prop 14 at the state level. Uh, This number is going to reappear again. Um, They defeated Proposition 14, which was to get a a massive state funding for public housing. Um, But, you know, even so, Oakland had already planned for these 3,000 units with the, you know, what we call the Oakland counter-revolution. The hopes of that essentially go away. But what comes out of that campaign is this statewide coalition of realtors, business interests, and homeowners, you know, (laughs) frankly, NIMBYs. Who just don't want public housing, and I mean, the reason I bring up all the FHA stuff and redlining and all that is because you know this is kind of the first decade of this earnest experiment in like, what if we build white middle class wealth with homeownership? People associated black people with a decrease in property values. Uh, Because, you know, that is what they saw with slums and overcrowding after like the war and the Great Migration. And like that was a direct economic threat to like their retirement nest.
0: Yeah. So I I think, yeah, to, to sidebar here, just as far as what like what is the ideology here it's i mean the the classic prism is like oh you have the kind of just homeowners just want their own life and then you have big business realtor yeah, but yeah, i yeah. mean the the, the george lens is to <laughs> say look at the people who have the stuff yeah. the, the land and the real estate and they actually routinely work together yeah uh and i mean in, the way
1: i would put it is like the realtors and the like suburban tract developers um you know they had kind of a a captive audience and that the homeowners and the Committee for Home Protection was not their astroturf. It really was their grassroots. I mean, they so they they used federal policy to create these incentives for home building and by that way got they grew a constituency of people who aligned with their economic incentives of exclusion
0: so i think there's a lot in in the article the interesting quotes uh you can say it starts off saying like we believe that the people don't want public housing they want urban Mm -hmm. redevelopment through private enterprise this Mm kind of goes with this idea of like what is but a lot of this has to do with individual households that are worried about Actually, being dispossessed. Yes, which is very interesting because if you talk about building public housing within a city, there is one huge question: where do you get the land? Yeah, <laughs> and I think you can read, you know, uh, about Robert Moses and all the different land acquisition programs. Like, the thing is, people it, did get dispossessed by urban renewal. Yeah, which is the thing is, like, it's the
1: people who needed the public housing. It's the black people. Yes, it's, I mean that's, that's the thing. It's like irony
0: of yeah. <laughs> you you have two you have two options here. One is you get land or you don't get land. And mm-hmm. I think right now we've had a couple decades of you don't get land. Mm-hmm. There's no acquisition programs. Step one, you get land. Yeah. Question two, who do you get it from? Yeah. And the white homeowners in Oakland or worried it was going to come from them, Yeah, and they fought, and instead the land came yeah. from black tenants. Right. You so know.
1: the freeways and you know, the, the, the BARTs, uh, the overhead BART, right, because Berkeley managed to get BART to go underground, Uh, And got a nice park where BART goes from North Berkeley to downtown Berkeley. But, you know, 7th Street used to be a thriving business community of black homeowners. And that just got crushed. And the 980 did the same thing in West Oakland. Um, And, you know, that's why, you know, a lot of people talk about, um, you know, urban renewal was, was a destruction of black wealth by a coalition of, like, you know, Chamber of Commerce type business interests who were kind of using this federal impetus towards, like, urban renewal and like you know building this new infrastructure to make downtowns this engine of economic growth because it, it was kind of tra- uh, backtracking from like building suburban wealth because like they realized they had, like when you get white flight like that kind of screws over your inner city downtowns and it's like oh well like you know what if we build all these freeways and and uh, trains to get the white people to downtown to revitalize downtown and help the business community. Like
0: yeah, all these, trampled all these... over
1: all this is black people and Mexicans and Asians.
0: It was very convenient that you could basically get the land at a bargain because oh it's only these minorities. No one cares if we right. kind of take their land. Right, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean I think it's a it's a thing. It's like we just we the, the George's paradigm is, hey, how do we share the land and if you want to look at who should actually you know, right. who, like you can actually take away land wealth from the people who have the most, but instead in practice, right. every time you take away from the people who have the least. Right. And- Mark, I
1: have a question for you. I think there's maybe a George's blind spot here.
0: Well, go, go, go ahead. How do
1: you account for the fact that land gets devalued just because the people there have darker skin?
0: I think the question there is really about who deserves the credit for the positive externalities of a city. And I think if you want to go full Peter Thiel, he would say, well, the VCs do. The, the VCs are the people who bring you know, it was, value. What's funny and, is, uh, <laughs> is
1: one of the uh, the attorneys uh, in the Committee for Home protections named Adrian Teal. I I, I I had to look that up. Say, like,
0: <laughs> Wait, is he a cousin? But the Teals were all in Germany. But yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, it was on my mind because of this Teal in the article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you could say, like, well, you have the upright citizens. They bring the most value. And actually, the yeah. urban surplus should go back to them. I would yeah. say, as someone who believes in the equal dignity of all human beings, right. everybody who's a resident deserves an equal share. And right. that's the only fair way you can do it i can easily imagine someone says the like the land belonged to everybody in proportion to how productive you are right that's to me scary
1: but if black people are like locked out of like product the productive growth engine like they're discriminated against from jobs they're discriminated against from schools like that just compounds this like the you know like it's kind of a um
0: well, I would say d- d- redistributing the urban s- the urban wealth and land rents is not right. enough if you exclude right. people. Right. right. So exactly. Y- so I mean, it's I- a
1: chicken and egg question. Like, yeah. if you like make a class of people like if you exclude them from productivity, <laughs> then like of course it will look like they're less productive stewards of the land. Yeah. So I mean, it just seems like there's this extra component. Oh, absolutely. It's kind yeah. of you
0: look at the uh, like. You know, oil wealth in Norway. You know, it's like you have to be a Norwegian to get it, right? And I, you can't just show up tomorrow. I don't. I think. Right, they, I right, think right. they're pretty restrictive immigration. Ah, dang. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's the dream. Uh, but so this story, it's it's a depressing end. Yes. So they recall all the Soak Dems, and well, they
1: recall one of them, and or, they throw the next two out. In yeah. the next election,
0: I mean, they they break the majority. Yes, and and now they can't build the three thousand, which I I don't That's know. Right. I don't know how much the three thousand would really fix the problem. Probably not nearly. Enough. Well,
1: I mean, it was a start. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, and uh, and not only did this happen, but we got a nice new constitutional amendment, which That's is right. still in place.
1: That's right. Um, and so now we got to talk about the times where that amendment was triggered into uh, municipal referendums and failed and we failed to get public housing again and again
0: so so let' let's, let's let's go to public day how like so you have San Mateo county uh, has
2: of uh, like this like the 60s apparently
0: like They had built
2: some public housing there. Yes. So there was some public housing. There's public housing in uh, Redwood City. There's public housing in San Mateo. Um, There's a building actually right now in San Mateo called Leslie Towers. Um, that was uh, initially, I'm not sure if it still is, but was initially funded by HUD Yeah, and is actually one of the tallest buildings in San Mateo. It's 12 stories, which Dang. would be illegal to build today, uh, thanks it, to our height restrictions.
0: Must have taken a real extra lift because we know Article 34 makes it hard. And I think I, I see something here saying by the mid-60s,
2: there were zero public housing in Santa Clara County. Yeah.
0: Which is insane. Yeah,
2: it's it's absolutely insane. And so- San Mateo County actually went through a pretty big building boom. Um, I mean, all of uh, Santa Clara County did as well. But the late 50s to the uh, through really the mid 60s, San Mateo County saw a huge number of apartments built Um, that eventually resulted in really high vacancy rates, like 12 to 13 percent vacancy rates in the mid 60s. And then they stopped building because they overshot it. Basically. Um, huh. And so there are like- That's always a rent happy story. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then they stop building those apartments. And again, this is where the failure of the market as a mechanism comes in, right? Yeah. So you have really high vacancy rates uh, after this big glut of apartment com- apartments comes online. And then the industry basically stops building- Housing, and they know.
1: see high density housing as a negative externality because it, "quote unquote" slum conditions.
2: Yes, and then a decade later, in 1975, you see an article in the San Mateo Times entitled "Cheap Housing Shortage Here: Nine Thousand Units Needed Countywide," um, and there really is, by far, the biggest one of the biggest issues in San Mateo County is the lack of truly affordable housing and public housing has a huge role to play there. Um, so the the 12-story
0: the uh, uh, unit or a project that they, they built, uh, where is it like related to downtown?
2: So it's literally, it's probably my favorite building, actually, in San Mateo, because it is 12 stories of beautiful 30% AMI, low-income housing for seniors. Um, it's 200 units, and it is immediately adjacent to Central Park, Um, And to downtown. So residents can literally you have all these seniors who are able to live there. Um, They also have supportive services, um, some other stuff. Uh, And then they can literally walk right into the park and walk right into downtown.
0: I would love to know the story of how that came to pass, because that is in opposition to, I think, the common failures of public housing, which is put in the outskirts. Let's just build this gigantic tower to contain the lower
2: classes away from us. Is it partly because it was made for seniors and they're more of part of the community? I'm actually not sure. I haven't been able to find a complete history on the building yet. And I've talked to the building managers and they don't seem to know themselves. That's interesting. Uh, But in other words, I mean, so uh, the story
0: here is public housing was happening. It was happening, perhaps not as much as it would be Mm with Article 34. And this was a time when we were still funding it at the the federal level, which is the biggest story here. Uh, but I think this kind of leads us up to the to the mid 60s, early 70s. And yeah. there was a Article 34 was directly brought to the Supreme
1: Court. That's right. So in James V. Valtierra, um, there is a suit against Article 34 because um, San Jose identified a, a shortage of affordable housing and tried to build thousands of units of public housing, had to put it on the ballot and it failed. Um, and so um, uh, Anna Valtiera was um, a seasonal cannery worker um, who uh, essentially brought a suit against that uh, with, like, legal aid groups um, because, you know, it, I mean, this article, um, A Right to Housing in the Suburbs by uh, Aaron Caven, really goes into detail about her hardships, not only finding affordable housing, but just having a decent life with the, like, Bad housing she could find. I mean, it talks about how, like, you know, she couldn't afford a car. So she has to. I imagine the bus service is as bad in the South Bay as it is today, but she had to take, like, multiple buses to get her kids to the medical clinic and to the welfare office. I mean, just all this stuff where it's like, okay, great. Like, if you're a white professional, like, you get the convenience of life from all this, like, great publicly subsidized federal infrastructure. But if you're poor, like, Oh, I guess private citizens get to veto any improvements to your life. Um, It's
0: interesting because this is a time in Santa Clara County of amazing growth from orchards to the early Silicon Valley. That's right. And and it's interesting, too, at the same time, in order for exclusionary communities to have more control, uh, the amount of municipalities doubled in this area. That's right. There's massive... Annexation of San-, yep. San Jose. And largely, this is because, I mean, I think there's more zoning power, but right. it's a, I'm sure a big part of it was yeah. the fact you can vote to stop any public housing.
1: Yeah, and a lot of it was also um, through what the article describes as fiscal zoning. So, you know, there's a lot of this annexation and a lot of this, like, suburban tract development um, in order to bring tax revenue to the city so that, like, it can do stuff with all this growth. Um, but obviously, housing for poor people doesn't bring in a lot of tax revenue because they're poor, but no one thinks to like help poor people not be poor. The solution is said is to to keep them out and like go along with business as usual.
0: And I just want to say the article we're referring to is a different article. The "A Right to Housing in the Suburbs," James V. Valtiera and the Campaign Against Economic Discrimination, Aaron Caven. Uh, this is just uh, yeah, we're referring to.
1: Yeah, you can uh, email us if you want a PDF, but you need one of those like logins to get. Uh, you know the journal articles because it's, it's we don't cool, have open access. A
0: Cool Twitter kind of like uh, Hub Love, uh, check it oh. out. Good good stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and, and San Mateo County was also at the exact same time challenging it with all, a near identical case, right?
2: Yes. So at the same time, actually a little bit earlier in uh, in sixty nine, um, San Mateo County Legal Aid, uh, led by. Two people, Lois Scheinfeld and her husband Anthony Amsterdam, who actually went on. Amsterdam's actually a pretty well-known attorney, and went on to argue in front of the Supreme Court in Furman v. Georgia, famous death penalty case. Oh. Um, but at the same time, basically, Anthony uh, Amsterdam and Lois Scheinfeld of Legal Aid were arguing in federal court um, against Article Thirty Four and arguing that. The uh, that Article 34 was in direct violation of the United States con- Constitution, and they're doing so on behalf of a woman named Gussie Hayes and 18 other residents of mostly Black and Latinx communities in San Mateo County, and they're arguing, um, you know, suing the Housing Authority on on behalf of these tenants and on behalf of these low income renters to say that article 34 was in direct violation of the United States constitution. Yeah. Specifically
1: the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment. And it's interesting. Uh, Thurgood Marshall had a, a dissenting, he wrote the dissent of James V. E. Valterra, uh, which the Supreme court basically decided like, was he the, the only dissent? No, there were three others. Okay. Um, but, uh, or maybe two others, three total, uh, whatever. Um, the Supreme Court's decision is basically like, well, this isn't racial discrimination since this discrimination against poor people, which is not a legal entity that you could argue is a protected class, therefore excluding us poor people who don't exist is fine. Um, yeah, it's
0: very. This is, I mean, the context this is a few years after Fair Housing Acts were passed at the federal level, which is yeah. like you cannot explicitly do racist stuff. Right. But. Uh, These people were recognizing that even when it wasn't explicitly a racial covenant, when it wasn't explicitly a landlord uh, filtering on race, the economic effects of disallowing public housing, which was largely needed by the minority communities, uh, these were indirectly leading to racial discrimination. But
1: I mean, the way you can tell that it was explicitly racist is that the Committee for Home Protection stayed around. And in 1964, they had their own Proposition 14 campaign to repeal the Rumford Act, which was a state bill, essentially uh, a state fair housing bill that also banned uh, racial discrimination in private lending. So it's um, kind of
0: the California version of the Fair Housing Act. Yeah. A few years early. So California yeah. does it and they try to rip it off. Like, yeah. Right well after- they
1: do. They succeed.
0: Oh, so it is ripped off.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the yes. Yeah. So they, they they went nuts because, oh my gosh, you know, like realtors won't be able to redline. Like you won't be able to to charge black people usurious interest rates to buy less good homes. Um, <laughs> just
0: raising my hand right now. Direct democracy is often awful. Yeah. I mean, they, they, oh
1: yeah, I mean, we live in (laughs) California. That's a known fact at this point. Literally the worst. Um, Yeah. So
0: we we do something good and then immediately the racist homeowners, et cetera, in the state, just take it away.
1: That's right. So um, Thurgood Marshall made a a pretty good dissenting opinion in uh, James V. Valtier. He said, it is far too late in the day to contend that the 14th Amendment prohibits only racial discrimination. And to me, singling out the poor to bear a burden not placed on any other class of citizens tramples the value that the 14th Amendment was designed to protect. Um, That, to me, like, kind of underscores something that I always wonder when, like, NIMBYs in Berkeley, where I live, or, like, wherever, really, say, like, oh, the community must have a say over this project. Like, oh, you got to ask the neighbors if it's okay to build these apartments. Like, well, you know, no one, (laughs) like... Who was consulted when your house was built? Who was consulted when, like, you got a federally-backed, like, mortgage you know what i mean it was
0: consulted when the natives were kicked off the land
1: right yeah that didn't go through like a ballot initiative
2: who is the community (laughs) here yeah yeah
1: um but i think what this underscores overall is like the conditions that like make life hard for poor people are not like a natural consequence of universal forces like they're the end result of policies like like made into effect by people who have the privilege to not experience them so like when we you know when when the people talk about like oh slum conditions in poor housing therefore you got to raise it oh slum conditions in public housing don't build public housing like that's the result of the policies pushed by the same people who don't want it in it's the first by place. design. Yes. We one,
2: literally design these policies yeah. to do these things and then we are surprised that they yeah. have this effect or, you know, yeah. faux surprise. Exactly. You yeah, can, you can the... look at specific stuff like egregious stuff in the past like racial
0: covenants are a very specific policy. It's like, right. "Oh, of course it's." But you I think one important policy which I think drives this is the policy we have of uh, land ownership, you know, just of Well, a, yeah. A, a very common policy we have, uh you get land ownership and don't get taxed the full land rents, Yeah, you know? It's a well, I mean, encouraging
1: it as a as a private wealth being building vehicle, but kind of backed by like the, the backstop and like ultimate insurance to that investment is racial exclusion and federal subsidies of car sprawl. So like we're paying for for carbon emissions and we're paying for segregation to make white people wealthy off buying this nice land.
2: So it's, it's literally taxpayer funded segregation and sprawl,
1: yeah uh, and one of the, I think one of the main points that American Babylon makes over and over again and really convoluted and honestly boring academic writing is that like all this rigmarole and all these political fights were really because policymakers would not address the underlying conditions of inequality, they addressed all the externalities of inequality by making inequality worse mm um and that's one of the things article 34 did and probably the main reason it needs to be repealed because it sucks
0: so i mean it's it's worth mentioning there's like two effects here one is that racism is not only the effect of direct like racist policies but indirectly through class like class segregation oh, and yeah. and that's that's obviously true and it needs to be recognized the second thing is class segregation is also bad in itself but it yes. is not it is not Based upon legal jurisprudence, yeah. not actually disqualified by the Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah,
1: I mean, there was that like I think this thing kind of went viral where um, presidential candidate Senator Kirsten Gillibrand um, uh, was talking at a town hall in Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah, I read that. And yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this this like poor white woman gets up and says like Why are people talking about white privilege? Like I'm broke, and you know she gives this explanation. Well, like you know racism doesn't mean white people's problems don't exist it means like black people have worse problems that are baked in systematically like health disparities affect poor white people sure but like that like the like the the exponentially higher uh, mortality rate for black mothers does not mean that poor white people don't also have health disparities you know what i mean yeah. so i mean that uh, that i think is is um you know one of the main reasons why um, they talk about like, you know, class solidarity as a way to, to break kind of a racist classist power structure or whatever. Like that, that has always been of the impediments to it is, is, you know, white people are always like,
0: well, what about me? So, uh, there is this, so there is a repeal of Article 34, which is likely to go on the ballot, yeah. but I, I hear it's bad uh, because Scott Weiner was a co-author, and he's, <laughs> oh, and he's a bad guy, so I think this, this repeal must be actually neoliberal and yeah. bad, and we shouldn't do it. I
1: mean, you know, Scott Weiner also voted for the bill, like, um, restricting use of force for police officers and opening up Uh, Retroactive um, uh, use of force records or police departments. So, I mean, police reform must be bad, too. (laughs)
2: Everything Scott Wiener
1: touches is bad.
2: He was also in Burlingame a couple weeks ago talking about rent control, in favor of rent control, Prop 13 reform, and upzoning. Well, I'm against against those things, One of the most conservative cities on the peninsula. And um,
0: he was uh I, I was talking to a person I know who is a lobbyist for the Quaker organizations, which go to Sacramento to lobby for uh prison reform to uh-huh, make it, you know, more uh-huh. humane as well as other economic reforms. And he says like he got blowback about Scott Wiener co like co authoring a, a massive prison, uh, you know, uh, a bill to make it more humane because, like, it's like, oh yeah, I hear he's a bad guy, which mm, is like, mm. I don't. It's so unfortunate that the like that a lot of it is just we have to group the good people and the bad people. And they go on the right, like he has done. Yeah. He's he's done some pretty bad things, but I don't think it's useful to say there's good people and bad
1: people. Yeah, I mean, one of the you know one of the reasons I hate talking about San Francisco and that it's terrible and should be disincorporated <laughs> is that like. <laughs>
0: That's that's a first. The hear. people
1: who climb the political ladder in San Francisco make all these kind of unseemly alliances with the quote unquote growth machine, which historically includes, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, the police union, like whatever. Um, and so like we'll make all these concessions to the Chamber of Commerce and the Police Union. What you know, whether whether or not they're in earnest and you know, Scott Weiner always says he looks at policies and supports the policies that Evans supports the best. Like, okay, fine. Um, but then, like, they go to Sacramento and they bring, generally, Sa- San Francisco values yeah. to Sacramento. And, like, you know... Talk about Willie the- Brown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Earlier. Uh, Willie Brown, who came to the assembly as, like, the leftist upstart and tried to repeal Article 34 multiple times, like, then came back to San Francisco and is this, like, business-aligned, like, corrupt... Like essentially, <laughs> Mr. Growth boss. Machine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And but so, but in his
0: heart, he always took the lessons he learned at the Henry George School of San Francisco back in the late 60s.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Scott Weiner, who listens to this podcast, in his heart believes in the abolition of homeownership, I'm sure. I don't but, know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not, but, I mean,
0: <laughs> that's a real fact that <laughs> Willie Brown did take the. Oh, I Henry know. Ge- I know. Yeah. He's a crypto georgist
1: Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I guess my point is like local politics doesn't map onto. Higher levels of politics 100% of the time. And I mean, obviously, it did in the case of the Committee for Home Protection and the the Rockridge Improvement Club. But um, Scott Wiener on the Board of Supervisors versus Scott Wiener uh, in the State Senate trying to repeal Article 34 um, takes a, another level of nuance to. To really grasp, I, mean,
0: I would just say, look in your heart and look at ideas. And I think there is a lot of political will to say homeowners are not a class. Homeowners are actually like the most progressive God, what people. A stupid idea. And like, and also this, this is a political statement made, made by people who just don't are stupid. Who, I'm oh. going to go on the record saying that. Okay, Diego's record
2: saying it's stupid. I'll, I will also join Diego on the record. And, Thank you, and I, and I will all third that. it That's as well. Very uh,
0: look if
1: you're if you're gonna okay, you can't argue that homeowners aren't a political class. And that the system of like subsidizing homeownership as an investment vehicle for the white middle class that excluded black people and perpetuated segregation is wrong. Like you can't contend that that like the system as I described exists and is bad and that it doesn't perpetuate like separate class interests.
0: And you talk about like, you know, Palo Alto, which I always love to rag on. Palo Alto, someone said like well, I'm not a millionaire. I moved here back in the '70s and I paid a hundred thousand dollars. I'm just a normal yeah. person living. But you chose to live in a racially segregated area in the '70s and paid money to buy into yeah, it. Yeah, where the federal like, government are guaranteed complicit. that
1: the value would go up, right? I mean, you're a, if you're a baby boomer or even a like a, ne- a, a greatest generation person or whatever who bought a home in Palo Alto or like North Berkeley Hills or whatever somewhere where like the federal where the FHA said like these mortgages are good because they are for white people yeah like that is part of a system that that perpetuated class and racial um stratification
0: it's personal property diego
1: well (laughs) i guess the socialist state won't um expropriate it oh well
0: So, uh, I mean, so it's chugging long. it'll be on the ballot uh, mm-hmm. so like have we exhausted all the ideas here? What else do we want to talk about?
2: i have, uh, I have a funny Scott Weiner anecdote uh along along the lines of some of the stuff that Diego was saying. This was a few months back, um and it was right after a meeting that uh state Senator Jerry Hill had with local electeds. On I want to hear your best Scott Wiener compact. impression and I do, I do not do good scuffling <laughs> impressions. I don't do good impressions generally, but I, I certainly would not do a good Hi, game. Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was a pretty good <laughs> Um, But so I'm – Jerry Hill had this closed-door meeting with all these different local electeds in San Mateo County to talk about the Costa Compact and their feelings on it. And spoiler alert, you know, spoiler alert, uh,
1: they hate it. So this non-binding kind of policy-guiding document they hate it. They hate it. They hate it.
2: Every part of it, they hate it. Got it. Got it. And so I'm standing outside waiting to see you know, who comes out of this meeting. And a few local suburbanite council members come out. One of them is from Los Altos. Uh, and they're talking with some other suburbanite council members. And the council member from Los Altos, who I will not name but oh, people in the housing sphere can probably guess, says, I heard Scott Weiner speak at an event once and he actually said that single-family homes are racist. He actually believes that. Can you believe that? Yeah. And I'm standing there chuckling going, yes, I can believe that. Yeah. They I can't, can't believe that.
1: They can't differentiate between the building structure and the zoning. I think it's, I mean, obviously it's intentional. Like, they can't differentiate between their material interests and the material, but... <laughs> um it's very funny it's a very funny attack on scott wiener that brings us endless delight
0: i mean does. i mean there's things that i disagree with what he has said one i think he never actually said it but he should have because
2: it's 100 percent true has, has he actually said it uh i actually have no idea if he's actually said it but i assume mark he should say it. You know. <laughs> All family homes are racist oh he's on the record right here <laughs> there, we, there we have it folks yeah, I mean, they are. Scott I mean, Weiner weighed in
1: on this podcast. It's automatically the best episode of the Henry George program. <laughs> I mean,
2: it's, not, it's obviously not the—it's the system and the style and how all of this happened, which we have already talked about, but that level of nuance is apparently inaccessible to— Council oh. members in Los Angeles,
0: and office. to put on my Georgist hat, it's the fact that land ownership is racist, and single-family zoning is a way of basically concentrating how much land you effectively get for your buck. Well, Correct. when your when yeah. your
1: economic incentives depend on not understanding these nuances, like <laughs> you're, you're just not, not going to understand. understand them, yeah.
0: All and I'll say this: like this SF mods who go to Sacramento and I think are the most progressive. Boy, yeah, absolutely. I, ho- I hope that can like I would love that to be on the peninsula because I feel the peninsula is just so like I feel like San Francisco imports kind of this bad discourse. But we don't have, I think, the good progressive default here. It actually is just explicit blood and soil stuff so well, much the
2: time. It's funny to me. And I've and I've said this to SF leftists before somewhat, um, annoyingly that you annoying it, <laughs> never. It is, it is frustrating to me to see the narrative that the SF moderate faction is considered moderate because if you come down this if you come down to the peninsula and survey what we have here, um, which is not have, that far by the way, which is really actually, you can <laughs> actually, there's public transit, Samtrans. Caltrain both come from San Francisco down to the peninsula. Like once an hour on the weekend, all the time. Not bad. There's it even stopped at Atherton today. Oh, (laughs) wonderful! They they deign to let it stop. Yeah, believe it or not, I do
0: a live show live
2: from like Atherton, (laughs) like Square. No, but you come down to councils on the peninsula where you have you have city council members who own multiple properties, like are actual literal trump supporting republicans yeah and so when i hear (laughs) sf leftists say you know scott weir is a republican i can't help but think oh oh you are you kidding me (laughs) There's, I mean, I was following. This is
0: kind of off the topic here, but this guy uh, Rishi, what's his name from Saratoga, is running for Congress. I mean, maybe it's a laughable campaign, yeah. but he was endorsed by Stephen Sharf, endorsed by Ling Chow of Cupertino, oh, like all the weird right wing Trump people, like Ling Chow. Uh, well,
1: and, hey, and, I, I was to clarify, I was told Yang Chow did not actually support Trump, but she voted, she voted, she votes Republican because she finds Gavin Newsom too radical great uh <laughs> that's an no, opinion but this that guy
0: exists but this guy is this crazy way. like just this easy his platform is basically i cut burglaries in saratoga which is this exclusionary suburb he's saying like if you see a stranger call the police this is a quote from his website oh sure just okay. like just uh, immediately yeah, call. i would do that <laughs> yes and he's endorsed by dozens of locals throughout the peninsula and these are places like cupertino monte sereno and, like shouldn't sh- wait sh-
1: if we believe in local control Shouldn't these people not be weighing in on, on you know, other And other this goes areas? back to
0: this idea. These municipalities exist largely to create local control, to stop public housing. The very existence of Sereno is incredibly regressive in itself. Yeah. And yet we don't have it in the main discourse that we should just, of course, disincorporate Monteserino. Yeah, you know? of course. But, like, I think this should happen yesterday.
2: Yeah. I mean, even even recently, it's... It's funny because we have you normally hear the opposition to, you know, market rate in the city, but you hear less of the opposition to affordable housing on the peninsula, which absolutely exists and has existed for forever. But in 2016, Midpen, um, which is an affordable housing developer, uh, proposed a project in San Mateo in uh, the downtown area and the Central Neighborhood Association said that a 100% affordable housing project was not appropriate for their neighborhood.
1: I wonder why. Oh, fun. And so, what, when, were there, what were
2: the reasons? Uh, I mean, they, you know, what do you think the reasons are? Um, because they didn't, they didn't specify, but you can pretty much guess. All it right, has right. to do with skin color
0: they, they probably found a better area. They'd like it better there. You know, it's just they. they San Mateo doesn't have all the amenities they deserve. They deserve a better place. It, it just so, one so happens their...
1: that not having poor people around makes our investment more valuable.
2: Correct. And one of their one of their reasons was that all the affordable housing in San Mateo shouldn't be put in in the central neighborhood. <laughs> and as far as I could find, there hadn't been an affordable project there since the nineteen eighties. Um, So the good news is we are not putting all of our affordable housing in the central neighborhood. Um, The city did eventually choose. There was a choice between – these were for city-owned lots. um, And there is a choice between two affordable developers, Midpen being one, uh, EAH Housing being the other, and a for-profit developer. And the Central Neighborhood Association, who normally rails against everything, uh, came out to support the for-profit project.
1: Nice. So, Jordan, I want to flip this on its head a little bit. You mentioned kind of uh, market rate housing and versus affordable housing. Um, One of my great dissatisfactions with with local left, not the national left at large, is this obsession with, you know, the quote-unquote, the community having their say, which, you know, just happens to be your own yuppie clique that you then, like, abstract from. Anyway, but, you know, like, oh, like, direct democracy is the best because the people have their say. But, like, in California history, direct democracy has had these terrible reactionary right-wing outcomes. And their response has been, oh, well, like— we can just use it for good. Like, are you kidding me? But you know, you mentioned market rate housing, and one of the one of the arguments uh, made in the James V. Volterra dissent is like, poor people face these extra regulatory barriers to getting the affordable housing they need, versus someone who makes enough money and can afford market rate housing would not have faced those. And the response by people who say, oh, well, the shortage of affordable housing is bigger. So we need to focus on that. The response somehow seems to be, well, let's add those barriers to market rate housing, too.
2: Yeah, which I've is never understood absurd. I, I I don't understand it. And it's something that I mean, it's something that's really important to talk about. Um I the the idea that the idea that a voter referendum or that community input is what should be governing things. This has come up a lot in our um, height limits fight and height and density limits fight in San Mateo. And one of the arguments being made is that these things should be the will of the people. Um, And the way you gauge the will of the people is by having a vote. And the reality is that the ability or the privilege To vote, it's much harder. We know that it's much harder for low-income people. It's much harder for renters. Obviously, undocumented people who are affected by these policies can't vote. People who work there but can't afford to live there. Exactly. And when you have spent 30 years via this same policy making sure that the low-wage workers— in your city, in your county, can't afford to live there, who have to commute in from Tracy, who have to commute in from Stockton, don't get a vote, how fair is this actually? Well, maybe
1: the people who, you know, have invested in in homeownership there have the the biggest investment, and in therefore, should be the only ones to vote. Wait, and it's funny. There are a lot of
0: people who would agree with that statement. <laughs> you talk <laughs> about
1: the founding fathers.
0: You talk about making it harder for market rate housing enjoyers to be part of stuff. But it's always about new market rate housing people. It's like if you are a pr- yeah. like a homeowner for decades, it's never saying we should actually you know you know put the screws on those people. Yeah, this it's is- never
1: like force homeowners to sell their house for less
0: <laughs> or force them to actually house people because they have yeah. their houses are too big you know force them to build an yeah. adu and yeah, and, yeah. yeah. but uh, and, and then house someone for subsidized rates uh one thing i want to talk about here is also about new visions of what social housing can look like uh, in particular cross-subsidized housing uh-huh. one thing and this is something i think sonia brought up years ago before like the PPP article yeah cross-subsidized, revenue-neutral social housing would actually be a cool hack in California because you get around Article 34. Yeah. That's pretty funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that, like, both dumb leftists and, like, reactionary MAGA trolls on the right think about, like, social housing is that it's free. Like, you know, it gets magically built and the government doesn't need to charge people rent to maintain it, which is obviously not true. And, like... Some of the reasoning on that is like, oh, like people are just charging market rates because they're mean and not because like, you know, they have to pay back lenders or like, you know, banks that have interest rates for their construction loans or whatever. I mean, if you know, land
0: acquisition costs are at market, it's you that you have to actually pay for that.
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, there's all these inputs contributing to market rate and that and like those don't go away if the government builds it. Like some of the obviously like the financing rigmarole would get easier if we did stuff like repeal Article 34 and repeal Prop 13 and had, like, a dedicated funds for affordable housing. But, I mean, you know, th- those buildings have to be repaired. They have to be maintained. Um, when there's two, uh, you there's know, two landlords two... always say, yeah. like, oh, we have to, like, fix the stairs or, like, oh, we need to pay the property manager, therefore we have to raise our rents. Like, that, that doesn't go away with social housing. That can be ameliorated if, you know people could rent it and you know, they make a good salary as like a professor here at Stanford or something, like the government should probably milk those people for what they're worth.
0: So I think there, <laughs> there's a question here, which is um, the, the, the who bears the marginal cost of, right. of, of, of doing this? And this could be right. like not even the cost of acquiring the property and, right. and building it, but just the marginal cost. And some people would say like a public housing... Should be free. You show up. It's zero dollars, zero dollars forever. Right. And like that's great, but there's a trade off because right. that's amount of taxes. and right. That means
1: the government can build less of it with you, its money. You get
0: less units. Yeah. And if you want more units, you can do clever stuff like have higher rates, pay for lower rates. Yep. But here is something. I think this is a very valid point. Saying yeah. isn't mean testing bad? Sure. And I think that's absolutely correct to say that. I think when you talk about an overall vision. For how we address housing reform should not be a heavily means-tested program, which people right. end up in income buckets cross-subsides yeah. each other. And I'd say, actually, I think if you're really going mega brain here, there should always be you know just absolute programs to help everyone else. But you talk about you know what is an average person? An average person perhaps should have universal housing no matter who you are. Right. But what if what do you call that? If it's open to everybody well, and you pay it uh, to me isn't that that's the, market rate. Right. Isn't yes. that the
1: point of like social market rate housing is that it doesn't means tests but yeah. then how do you have like how do you, how, control how do you for, yeah how do poor people then afford that? I mean, I think the other component well, is I think, like
0: I think if the city governments actually owned all the land, yeah. were running places at cost, right. then you'd have universal housing programs that would be universally affordable, you'd also have safety nets for people who really need it, but sure. it would not be the main mechanism sure. of driving it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. no one's talking about this except Matt Brunig saying, like, actually, we should have social housing, it should all be market rate, which he says largely to troll people, but it's actually a really good idea. Yeah. That was a
2: great Brunig impression, I, by the way. I
1: mean, um, <laughs> the other uh, the other aspect of that, I think, is that people get annoyed that like someone's making a profit off building housing, because, of course, people only ever want to make profits because they're bad. Um but, um, but if you want to
0: make money on your home, that's, yeah, that's I just mean, like, the American dream.
1: Look, I mean, like, are you gonna compartmentalize, or are you gonna have a complete like left vision? Like, I think we should raise capital gains taxes a lot. Like, I think there should be wealth taxes. Like, I think you should have confiscatory taxes levied on like. I mean, private equity should be banned. So not maybe not private equity, but like I think like you know private investors should pay a lot of capital gains back into the public good and so like if you tax the private market enough like why is it a problem that they make a profit like you know we're assuming (laughs) that like that like trump and like and like you know bush jr jr are going to be in power forever and that we will never get the tax we want like that just seems like giving up too early
0: I mean, is there a difference between someone who's a slumlord who buys, you know, kind of low-income houses at a, at a song and just kind of slowly jacks up the rents as, you know, the place gentrifies? To me, that's completely parasitic. There's no value added there. Of yeah, just saying, of course. And you talk about someone who actually buys something, builds something, and... I think the the mega picture here for me is if you do a land value tax, you only make money on doing stuff like building stuff. Yeah. And the parasitic dude makes zero dollars.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah.
0: Uh, Which, I mean, there is different levels of how parasitic people are. And yeah. I think well, this is something that is yeah. just not brought up.
1: Anymore. Obviously, wealth taxes should be indexed to, to tax more idle capital than productive investment, yada, 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 So we all agree. Land tax, land value taxes, right? That's
0: perfect.
2: We're do, all, we, do We're, we're we win? all good Georges here. What do we win?
1: I don't
0: What's know. What's the prize? I mean, we, we win the disc. Discourse. I don't know. Okay. Yay. Is there a winner
2: to the discourse? Everyone loses in the discourse. Uh, I was going to say. I win. Yeah. Uh, any, any other final thoughts? We've been going a little bit over an hour. Yeah. Um, so I just, have, I, I just have one thing that um, I should have brought up earlier, but it's something that I think about a lot. And it's a quote um, in that brief from uh, Lois Scheinfeld representing Gussie Hayes um, against Article 34. And her quote was, There exists throughout the county widespread racial discrimination in housing and fear of property devaluation occasioned by an influx of minority group and low-income neighbors. That still exists today. Yeah. Um, it's, it's abundantly clear on the peninsula that still exists today. And one of the things she used to back that up was the Rumford Act that we talked about earlier. Yep. Um, San Mateo County... The vote totals on that, um, 129,000 people in the county voted to uh, repeal the state's Fair Housing Act, and 85,000 voted against repealing the act. So overwhelmingly, San Mateo County voters yeah. voted to repeal it's the like, state's Fair Housing like a three to two ratio. Yeah. It's a
1: the tale of two Prop 14s.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and I mean, it is something to say that people... At least in the peninsula, I think there's still as much dog whistling, but people rarely go in and can say with a straight face, "This is going to lower my property values." Exactly. There, there's an increasing yeah. cultural norm just in the last five years saying you can't just say property values are why you do this; you have to pretend it's because of character. You have to find character. some other reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah quality, quality, quality of life. You have to find
2: some, <laughs> and it and it goes to it goes to another quote in this article, um, a woman by Elaine Eisenberg, uh, who's a San Mateo resident. Um. Who said that overt prejudice appears to be declining, but underlying uh, underlying discrimination remains, and that's where we are, I think, at this point. Um, yeah. It's yeah. under it's it's the overt stuff um, is pretty much gone, but you still have the dog whistles, you still have those kind of attitudes. Oh yeah, it's underlying, and it is still bubbling right oh, underneath yeah. the surface. Um.
1: Yeah, that's funny. I, I'm reminded an old boomer homeowner in Berkeley told me I was ruining the Bay Area and that there should be no more growth. And I said, so do you want to build a wall? And he's like, <laughs> well, no, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, how are you going to stop the growth? <laughs> um, but yeah, so every day I walk past um, actually a, a, you know, a public housing project managed by a nonprofit at Delaware and Shattuck. It's for um, it's for old folks. They have kind of like a elderly care um, paratransit shuttle come and like pick up the old people to, like, I don't know, go to the farmer's market or whatever old people do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And it's one of the relics of uh, HUD's scattered site funding, which, you know, was um, in response to earlier failures of public housing where they had concentrated poverty by having towers of public housing in the middle of nowhere. Um, And when Berkeley got scattered site funding and built public housing all over the city, homeowners didn't like it. Uh, and my, my now state senator, Nancy Skinner, was a council member at the time. And, um, you know, she tells the story of how Berkeley got district elections, which was that homeowners said, oh, well, this scattered site funding is bad. If we didn't have at-large elections and instead we had council districts, then, like, our little fiefdom could have a say. Um, and so they, they uh, in response to this scattered site funding and projects. Um they they put uh council uh they put district elections on the ballot, got rid of the at large system, and then they <laughs> drew the council lines so that the council member that some of the council members who had voted for the scattered site projects had to run against each other. So they drew the line they districted Nancy Skinner into a district, like they literally drew the line right around her house so that she would have to run against one of her allies in the next election.
0: So, I mean, it's the municipality. It's a good piece of local control. You need to be more local to make sure that the nice districts can keep it away from them. I mean, Elmwood Elmwood should
1: not be under the oppressive yoke of West Berkeley.
0: In general, (laughs) are district elections generally regressive? I, I, I mean, tend to think there's yes.
1: arguments to the contrary. Uh, if you talk to Jason McDaniel, a political science professor at SF State, he uh, often argues that district elections are, are good because the you know you have like I mean they're you good. Create, to, you they're create good majority to minority districts, for, right? But exactly. it
0: also kind of says segregation is natural and let's learn to live with it as right. opposed to saying this is incredibly like, this is, yeah. this is screwed up. We should not yeah. have the black area town, the white area I think, town.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean that, you know, the, when San Francisco was at large, Diane Feinstein, who lives in Pacific Heights, got like the highest vote share and became board of supervisors president. And that's how she ascended to mayor when Moscone was assassinated. What that tells me is like at large skews towards like higher turnout areas, mm. which skews rich and white. So I mean I think that's the argument for for districts to kind of balance well, out that's like kind turnout of disparities. Democracy but is yeah, regressive. exact exactly as you're saying. Yeah, I mean it it is kind of a band-aid on the larger issue yeah. of inequality as all of this that we've been talking about is
2: it it is. And I I want to point out so there's two cities on the peninsula that just moved to, um. That just moved. Well, one has moved. One is in the process of moving Menlo Park and Redwood City. And both have large. um, Are they they moving two
1: districts or two at large? Two districts. Two district
2: elections. So Menlo Park moved two district elections in the last election. Redwood City's next election will be district elections.
1: That sounds awful.
2: Um, it's It's actually enabled. There previously was not, in Menlo Park, there previously was not. A representative um, able to get on from the Bellhaven neighborhood, mm. which is the historically mm. red line neighborhood. And now uh, Cecilia Taylor uh, was elected in the last election from Bell Haven, um is African-American is now the vice mayor of the city um, or mayor. I think they go by mayor pro tem. Yeah. And has had a really strong voice advocating for tenant protections and upzoning of the downtown core rather than um, in Bellhaven, which is where most of the housing has gone. It, it also enabled the election of Betsy Nash, um, who shares similar thoughts as Taylor.
0: I can see it as a good harm reduction the, yeah. strategy, but I do wonder, like, do you ever see it actually work to desegregate the segregated areas or does it actually work to harden it in the long run? I mean, this is kind of a big question. I'd be curious.
2: So it'll, it'll be interesting. And Menlo park is, you know, a city to watch on that because it will having, you know, having that kind of outsized voice, both Taylor and Nash, um, arguing for things like upzoning in downtown, arguing for protecting the redlined area. Um, it'll, it'll be really interesting to watch over the coming years to see how, How their presence on council and how council elections affect things going forward. Yeah, so... Well, that's a lot to talk about. Article 34, uh, short, short, it's, it's, it's bad. Yeah, um, it's
0: bad. It's yeah, bad. It's, it's very bad. Uh, we don't like it. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for being here, uh, Diego. Thanks for having us, Mark. Uh, well, Thanks for uh, coming out of the fog and being on good mics for a change. And, yeah, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, Jordan, uh, you're both part of the For yeah. Everyone crew in different ways. Yes. Peninsula for everyone, East Bay for everyone. Uh, um,
1: I'm an uh, earlier volunteer, um, kind of uh, stepped away for now, but uh, hopefully I can get involved again soon.
0: But you're always in the always. I'm in in the the orbit. Yeah, the the periphery. We're currently seeing orbit. So, thanks a bunch. Thanks, Thanks, Mark. Mark. Thanks. We have been hearing all about Article 34 with Diego Aguilar and Jordan Grimes. This is the Henry George Program. You can find previous episodes at seethecat.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all that. Hey, why don't you give it a review on Apple Podcasts? It's rebranded now. iTunes is dead. Long live Apple Podcasts. This presentation of KCSU, Stanford.